The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Sprinkle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our show is about storytelling and a new podcast series called Salts and Water, Stories of the Maine Coast. We'll hear a few of these stories, including one about women fishermen in Stonington and one about the record-breaking tides in Eastport. And we'll talk with Crystal Hitchings, a planner with the Washington County Council of Governments. Hi, Crystal. Thanks for coming. Good morning, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So storytelling is an art form as old as humanity. And even though how we hear and tell stories has changed over the ages, humans still find inspiration and joy in hearing about places and people. Radio, like WERU, has always been an incredible source of storytelling. And now we find more and more people listening to podcasts, which are kind of like radio stories that people can access via their computer whenever they want. We wanted to feature this new Salts and Water podcast series featuring stories of the Maine coast because we're excited about how it uses sound to tell people about Maine. The podcast series is a project of the group Experience Maritime Maine, which our guest Crystal Hitching is a part of. Um, So we'll hear about Experience Maritime Maine a little bit before we start airing some of the podcasts. But first, Crystal, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about what you do. Thank you, Natalie. I am a regional planner with the Washington County Council of Governments, which means that I assist the communities throughout the county with many of their planning, grant writing, and other um, development and um, their hopes and dreams for the future. Um, And through this process, I became involved with regional tourism uh, as uh, economic development as a base for tourism. And uh, the Bold Coast Scenic Byway was a major project in the Down East region when I began. And that brought me to talking um, with uh, Down East Acadia Regional Tourism, who pulled Washington County Council of Governments into their project. And we became um, very involved in tourism throughout both Washington and Hancock counties. Through that, Experience Maritime Maine came to light as a major project for us to be engaged in, because we're all about coastal 
living coastal experience, coastal heritage. Great. Thanks, Crystal. And if you, the listeners, are hearing a little bit of shuffling around, uh, we're just fiddling with our mics and making sure that you guys can hear us because it was sounding a little bit low there. So hopefully this is better. Um, So Crystal from the Washington County Council of Governments was telling us a little bit about um, Experience Maritime Maine and um, the work that she's done uh, with that group, but also with the Council of Governments. So you're based in? I am in Millbridge. Okay. And your work spans how much of the coast? It essentially covers all of Washington and Hancock County. Through the Council of Governments, most of my work focuses on Washington County, but through the work that we do with Down East Acadia Regional Tourism, it's all of the Down East Acadia region. And Experience Maritime Maine also pulls me further down the coast. Um, That project really spans Portland to Calais. Great, great. So it's a coastwide project. Tell us a little bit more about Experience Maritime Maine. What it, what's it doing? Um, what's it doing in general in terms of what are the goals for both our communities on the coast and for folks who come here? Sure. The goal of Experience Maritime Maine is to engage visitors primarily with stories about Maine, but it's also about engaging folks who live in Maine with telling their stories. The the major trends in tourism are really heading towards people wanting to be much more personally and intimately involved in the stories and culture of the people that they meet along the way. And Experience Maritime Maine really wanted to offer an opportunity for visitors to get much more intimately engaged in the stories and experiences of the coast rather than just... um, viewing things or looking, experiencing things from more of a a distance. The stories that we try to capture for this um, project is really about engaging people with the place and the people that they're meeting. Great, great. So stories, um, stories as a mechanism to help people connect with this place um, and the people who live here. Yes. So the project began with a number of written stories. Our website, experiencemaritimemaine.org, offers a number of brief stories that were written by many of our members about different opportunities around the coast. However, we wanted to expand that into podcasts because not only is it a, um, a growing way that people um, it, gather information or, or um, interact with the world, it's also an opportunity to, uh, as Natalie was saying, get back to some of that very basic um, human interaction, the sound, the more sensory experiences of, of sound and the spoken word. I have had the opportunity to listen to a bunch of the podcasts on this Salts and Water um, series, and they're visceral. Like you feel like you're there. I'm excited to be able to share some of them with our listeners here in a minute. Um, Who is Experience Maritime Maine? Who are the players behind it? There are a number of us. We are, we call ourselves a consortium. So we're a loosely connected group of um, tourism service providers of many different varieties. And we're also... um, joined by many folks who are engaged more in um, fisheries and preservation that happens right here in Maine. Many of our players um, include museums. We have Maine Maritime Museum, Penobscot Marine Museum, Maine Sea Grant is a member, the Tides Institute in Eastport, 
Maine Office of Tourism is a huge player in this process. They're very, very helpful to us. We have Bonneville Consulting. Um, they are the mastermind behind the website and many of the stories that we've produced. Others include Maine Windjammers, the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, Center for Coastal Fisheries, Maine's Midcoast and Islands, and Down East Acadia Regional Tourism. Great. So introduce us to the podcast. How did they come about? Who's narrating? How do they work? Sure. The narrator is Rob Rosenthal. Um, He is a award-winning independent producer and teacher. He has been the host of How Sound podcasts on radio storytelling. He started and ran the Salt Institute on documentary studies some time ago and worked there for 11 years. He's now the lead teacher for the Transom Story Workshop. So through a grant from the Sewell Foundation and with assistance from the Maine Office of Tourism and others, we were able to contract with Rob to produce six podcasts about um, coastal towns from Portland to to Eastport. And um, we are just releasing them now and very excited to share them with you. Great. Great. And uh, for... Uh, some some of you may recognize the voice of the narrator through his work with the Salt Institute here in Maine. He's done a lot of stories that have been aired on many different venues, so it's fun to to hear him in this way. So I think we're going to jump into our first story here in a second. Um, this story, interestingly, is about the fishing industry and women entering a traditionally male-dominated field. Um, it's a compelling story about Maine and Maine people, and you're going to meet some characters that um, I know I want to meet them. Um, and this is really about sort of what's happening today in Stonington. So let's let the story It's a little after 5 itself. in the morning. I'm headed down to a wharf on the east end of the waterfront in Stonington. It is pitch black out and foggy, too. There's a bunch of lobstermen hanging out, waiting to start fishing for the day. I'm looking to meet Hazel. Hazel Woodward. Can I ask you guys about Hazel? Yeah. Yeah. We don't know much about Hazel. <laughs> no, yeah, we really know. She's, she's very quiet. quiet. Yeah. Keeps herself. Yeah. Very Keeps much. Yeah. Yeah. Hazel is unusual in several ways. For starters, she's just 17 years old. That's pretty young to be a lobsterman working on a waterfront full of older guys. She's a hard worker. Very hard. How so? See what she's fishing in? (laughs) Black dungeon thick of fog and she'll go out. I want to make sure you caught that. He said, black dungeon thick of fog. Hazel goes out fishing. More props to her. No radar, no nothing. I think she does it. Like everybody else does it, we just go and do it. (laughs) Do you promise you won't give away all my fishing spots? You're listening to Salts and Water, Stories from the Maine Coast, a podcast from Experience Maritime Maine. Salts for all the people in Maine with deep connections to the ocean and water because the ocean defines so much of life on the coast. I'm your host, Rob Rosenthal. Here are a couple of other things that are unusual about Hazel. A standard lobster boat is fiberglass, 30 to 40 feet long, sometimes bigger, and there's usually a wheelhouse to keep fishermen out of the weather. Hazel? She fishes on a wooden boat, just 18 feet long. No wheelhouse, just Hazel, out in the open air, her hair and headscarf blowing. At a brisk 8.7 knots, (laughs) flying along. This boat is terrible when it comes to maneuverability. There have been times where I have the wheel all the way to one side and the wind is blowing in such a way that I am actually slowly turning in the opposite direction. On top of all this, 
Hazel fishes alone. You talk to yourself out here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if there's nobody around, I sing to myself. Can you sing now? Not going to happen. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> ah, there we go. Hazel spots one of her bright green and red buoys. She slows down, circles it, and when the boat is close enough, Hazel grabs her gaff, a long pole with a hook. She reaches over the side and pulls up the buoy. She then threads the rope through a pot hauler. It's a motorized winch that pulls a lobster trap up from the ocean floor. It's not something that's easy, and it's not something that you would expect somebody like me to be doing. You know, it, it it's a pretty demanding job, and, you know, I, I didn't think that anybody would really take me very seriously. The trap eventually surfaces, and inside this one are six lobsters. You can hear their tails flat. Hazel first started fishing for lobster two years ago when she was 15. She hauled traps by hand. Now think about that. Pulling a heavy trap up through 30, 40, 50 feet of water, hand over hand on the rope. Well, at the, the end of that first season, I, uh, I had some shoulders on me. <laughs> well, now, now I've, I've gotten soft. You know, I have this, this pot holler it's spoiling me. But <laughs> Here's one more thing that's unusual about Hazel. She's the captain of her own boat. It's true, many women work on lobster boats. They tend to be sternmen, preparing bait, setting traps, and generally just pitching in with everything. But a woman as a captain, it's not unheard of, but it's not common either. Except in Stonington, there are seven women who captain their own boats. Nearly 15 if you count the surrounding area. Genevieve McDonald, I'm 33 years old. I'm a lobster boat captain out of Stonington, Maine, of the Hello Darling 2. I'm Meredith Oliver, 22. I am from Stonington, and I own the boat. The Edward Lee. That's after my uncle. It was my grandfather's boat. Deandra Jones. I live in Stonington. I am the lobster boat captain of the Double Trouble. Why is it called Double Trouble? I named it after my daughters. I have twins. Lobster man or lobster woman? Lobster man. Are you sick of that question? No. No. I am sick of that question. <laughs> I get asked that question like seven times a month at least. Um, and more all the time. And I use lobsterman or sternman or fisherman unless I'm specifically speaking about women in the industry. And then I say female lobster boat captain or woman fisherman. And actually, you know which one I hate the worst? Fishermen and women. Am I your maid? Am I the woman next door? Am I your wife? Fishermen and women? Fishermen and fisherwomen? Or just call us all fishermen? Yeah, I've been asked enough that now I have a pretty solid opinion about this. <laughs> What if I said to you, lobstering's a man's game? I'd say you're wrong. I don't think fishing has ever been a man's industry. Women have always played a vital role in the industry, whether they're on water or on land, because it takes a lot to run the books, to run the accounts, to run the household, to run your family. Women have always pretty much completely run the show on shore. Do men feel the same family challenges that women do? No. Tell me about that. Well, my husband gets to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and head out the door. Whereas I get up, whether how many times I've been woke up in the middle of the night, I have to get up and bathe them and get them ready for daycare, and then I can go. Back out on Hazel's boat, her morning is about half over. How would you say you're doing? 
I would say I'm doing great, honestly. When's the singing start? <laughs> After you're gone. <laughs> I think it's safe to say Hazel is an island girl. Her family roots go back to the late 1700s on Deer Isle. She's lived in Stonington all her life, and she just seems of this place. In fact, that's the main reason she wanted to fish. Fishing is part of the bones of the island. I'm a sucker for tradition, you know? I, uh, <laughs> I, I love learning about you know, my family's roots, my family's history. I love the history of the island and all of that, and just the tradition and the culture of it. And fishing is so tied up with that. I, I thought, man, wouldn't it be great if I could be part of this, you know, this local tradition that's, you know, it's been such a part of the island for so long. But I figured, you know, oh, no, nobody, nobody will. You know, they, they won't let me do that. Everybody will just laugh, you know. Oh, Hazel, you can't do that. Well, the opposite happened. Her parents supported her right from the get-go. Her dad taught her how to handle the boat and how to bait a trap. And she asked for advice around town. We were going around talking to people and, you know, they were they were kind of raising their eyebrows like, oh, man, she's hauling by hand and she's going to be going out by herself and all of that. Despite the raised eyebrows, other fishermen donated gear, and she got her student license. It's like a learner's permit for lobstermen. The first year, she set 30 traps. That was plenty, she says. Remember, she was hauling by hand. Her second year, 150. That's the limit for a student. I was, you know, I, w- I was reaching high and really pushing myself. You know, it was really outside of my comfort zone. Hazel hauls up yet another trap. A few traps have been empty, but this one has some lobsters. Yeah, you should see some of the real little guys. They're about the size of a finger. And then there's the monsters that take up about half of the trap. Hazel asked if I wanted to help out. I was reluctant, but she had me put rubber bands around lobster claws. I thought this was going to be easy, right? You just stretch the band out, put it over the claw, done. Well... I was so clumsy, she told me I would have been yelled at on another boat for being so slow. Then I botched filling a few bags of bait. I couldn't tie them up. My gloves were all slimy. That was my excuse anyway. She didn't ask me to help again. Genevieve, one of the other captains in Stonington, says my lack of dexterity isn't unusual, and it might not be because I haven't done it before. Depending on what job you have on the boat, I mean, baiting and banding and doing it quickly is a big piece of the component. I mean, you don't want to get backed up, slow the boat down. You know, you want to be able to go through lobsters as quickly as you can. And so, it, you know, women in that particular role, I think, have surpassed men in a lot of ways. And most of the captains I've talked to that have taken a woman are just amazed at how fast they can go through gear. What kind of person does it take to be a captain? Driven. You want to succeed. You want to do it and and do it well. You don't want to put all your work into this and then back out and look like you couldn't do it. You want to keep adding on to your traps. You want to go further. You want to get a bigger boat. You want to keep upgrading. You really can't go halfway in the fishing industry because you're on the water and it's dangerous. You have to know what you're doing and commit to it. And also it's expensive. It takes a lot to run and operate a boat. So if you only go halfway, you, you know, you'll fail. So you really have to have the drive and the follow through to really go. I did the CNA course. I did that. And that lasted for a winter. Soon as it got good and the boats were, you know, everyone was setting their gear again. See ya. I'm gone. I got to be out on the water. 
What would it mean to you to stop? To stop vision? Dead. Die. Dead. <laughs> I don't want to stop. I mean, this is what I've done. This is what I've lived. This is how I've grown up. There's nothing else that I want to do. For a while, I didn't ask Hazel any questions. I just watched her work. She's graceful, agile. She's sure-handed as she pulls and hauls and bends and bands and baits and pushes. Oh yeah, she'll stumble here and there or make a mistake. She calls it making a hash of things. Like the time she tied 75 feet of rope to a trap and then set it in 112 feet of water. <laughs> a little short. Regardless, she's perpetually optimistic. Yeah, I really like the hard work. Uh, there's, there's something, there's something about hard, honest work for honest pay that just has a really good feeling about it. Like, this sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's kind of like a good, clean feeling, which is a little ironic when you consider the job, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a, a great feeling to know that you've worked hard and really earned that, that check. We're headed in? Yeah. And just because you've been real good, you've stayed mostly out of the way, I'll sing a little tune for you. Without hesitation, I tell you this. I love Maine. Not too long after I hung out with Hazel, she applied for her commercial fishing license and got it. That will allow her to haul 400 traps next season, nearly three times as many traps as she's been setting. What's more, she bought a new boat. It's fiberglass, 30 feet long. It needed a lot of work. Her dad says they converted the family greenhouse into a boat shed, and Hazel worked six days a week on the boat through the winter. She learned how to lay fiberglass, apply marine paint, and wrestle with an engine and hydraulics. She's all set for the upcoming season, and the one after that, and the one after that. As you might expect, the lobster eating is pretty darn good around Stonington. So is the kayaking. It's amazing, actually. Dozens of small islands to weave in and out of and clamber around on. I can't recommend it enough. There's also the ferry out to Isla Ho. It's part of Acadia National Park. Isla Ho is not a secret, but it's off the beaten path and well worth the trip. Or if getting out on the water isn't your thing, just amble around the working waterfront in Stonington. It's one of the busiest. Year after year, Stonington lobstermen land more lobsters than anywhere else on the Maine coast. Thanks for listening to Salts and Water, stories from the Maine coast. This podcast is produced by Experience Maritime Maine, the website to visit before a visit to Maine. The site has many, many stories and trip ideas. I encourage you to listen to more episodes of Salts and Water, including a story about the dramatic tides and currents of Eastport and a story about my five-day escape from the buzz of life on land on a windjammer out of Rockland. Salts and Water is supported by Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine. Hats off to Abby Levin for her production help. Thanks also to Penobscot East Resource Center. Our theme music is from Ketza. I'm Rob Rosenthal. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU Community Radio 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and streaming online at WERU. And you're listening to Coastal Conversations. And uh, I am your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. And today we're talking about and we're sharing podcasts from a new um, podcast series that celebrates Maine's uh, coast through storytelling. And the podcast series is called Salts and Water, Stories from the Maine Coast. Um, So... Uh, that that story that we just heard, if you've just tuned in, was about the women um, fishermen, lobstermen from Stonington, and they were amazing. Uh, some of you may have recognized, if you're a regular listener of Coastal Conversation, Genevieve, one of the lobstermen, um, has been on this show. She's uh, been on the show talking with us about the lobster industry in the past, and we hope to have her on again. In fact, we hope to have any of those women on. They were really great. Though um, my guest and I in the studio felt a lot of compassion for the um, lobsterman who attached the wrong length of line and <laughs> lost her trap into the water. Um, so my guest in the studio is Crystal Hitchings from the Washington County Council of Governments, one of the many organizations who've been involved in helping um, pull together this project uh, through Experience Maritime Maine. Uh, so Crystal, what... You've listened to that particular story probably a couple times. Yes. Um, what is it? What do you think it says about the Stonington community? I think that, well, one of the things to remember is that women have been involved in fishing forever, um, in some role or another, and many of them have had very prominent roles. But um, in more recent times, I think that that has been less so, and perhaps we've forgotten a bit of that history, and. When I was reflecting on on what that might say about Stonington, I was thinking that perhaps it says that Stonington is a community that cares very much about its fishing industry. It cares about um, hard work and um, good salty fun and perhaps a lot less than more traditional roles of men and women. Yeah, yeah. Um, So there are so many stories that could have been covered in these podcasts, and hopefully there will be more coming. Um, I know that that's part of the the long-term goal, to keep keep making new ones. Um, How, how, what was the process to zero in on what stories to tell? We thought it was very important that the communities choose the stories that were told about them. And so we held a community forum in each of the six communities prior to choosing the podcast um, focus. And Rob came with us and we invited prominent people from the community and they helped us bring in more people that they, through their networks. And the community held a discussion um, just generally talking about what's important to them and what are the things that are happening, what are the issues that they might like to bring to light. And through that process, Rob was able to pinpoint sort of the most um, compelling or perhaps um, current issue that needed to be brought to light. Great. And I wanted to just let listeners know that if you want to hear more of Rob's work, um, he has had some stories here on WERU, including one on Malaga Island. So if you go to the WERU website um, and you go into the archive section and do a search for Malaga Island, um, it's an incredibly poignant story about a piece of Maine history that um, needed a little bit of airtime. So we'll let you go discover that one. Um, So... You had these community meetings um, and zeroed in on various stories, and then Rob, the producer, went out and 
recorded the stories and interviewed people to put it all together. Yes, through the discussions, the names of important people for him to talk to arose, and he did follow up with many of them, and uh, he went out on their boats um, in, on several occasions and, and spent a lot of time following them around and taking photography and... and uh, Great. Learning about them. What are the six towns that are covered in this first round? Let me think here. Okay, so we have Eastport, Stonington, Searsport, Bath. There was one that was all about wind jamming, so it didn't specifically cover a town, and then Portland. Okay, great, great. Um, And I know you'll tell us uh, in lots of detail later where folks can get to the stories, but is there a a website you can mention now that people can go and check them out? Yes, they can go directly to experiencemaritimemaine.org or saltsandwater.org. Okay, great. Um, So... We're going to move towards hearing the next clip. Um, I just wanted to let listeners know that we're not going to do calls today um, just because we want to focus on uh, giving you an opportunity to hear a lot of these stories because they're so compelling. So um, this next one, uh, Crystal, frame a little bit what's going on in this next one. This next story is about, it takes place mainly in Eastport, but it's really about the Cob- the tides of the Fundy Bay and, and Cobbsquick Bay particularly. Um, it takes something that is sometimes very difficult to describe to folks, the extreme change in tides in the Fundy area and um, tries to put it into words. It's a very challenging topic. Um, but the, the, main, the main idea of it is, is how people's lives are so, um, they're so focused on the water and the coming and going of the tides and everything that happens with that. Great. Thank you. September 8th, around 11 o'clock, just a half hour after low tide. And I'm at, whoa, Carrying Place Cove. And I'm walking out on the mudflats here, which stretch, well, I'm not really good at distances, but it's easily half a mile, I'm going to say. Could be three quarters of a mile out. That's how far the tide has receded here. Just sinking up to my toes and my sandals. A little worried that I'm going to hit some place and be up to my knees in less than a second. One of the defining features, no, actually, maybe the defining feature of Eastport, Maine, is the ocean, specifically the tides and the currents. They are, in a word, dramatic. This mud flat is a perfect example. Nice, dark, rich mud. Most of the day, Carrying Place Cove in Eastport is covered by water. But at low tide, there's no ocean to be seen. And getting up to my ankles. I have to say, the further out I go, the dumber I feel. Why did I think this was a good idea? Whoa, okay. (laughs) Oh, my sandal almost came off. This one won't come out. There. Phew. Okay, this is my turning around place. Oh, no. Now my other sandal's stuck. There we go. Okay, so if you visit Eastport, maybe you shouldn't walk out on the mud flats. You can say, I did it for you. Instead, if you'd like to experience the dramatic tides in Eastport, and there's that word again, dramatic, if you'd like to experience the tides and not get covered in mud, try this. 
at low tide, head down to the fish pier. It's on the waterfront in downtown. Look for one of the ramps on either side of the pier. I'm walking down a steep ramp down to a boat slip. And when I say steep, I mean I mean steep. Like I am holding on to a railing, I'm gripping with my toes because I don't want to slip uh, and uh, slide into the ocean here. Down at the bottom, standing at a small boat slip, I'm so far below the pier, I have to crane my neck to see the top. It's dead low tide right now. In Eastport and the surrounding area, like Lubeck and Campobello Island, tides average 18 feet. Now that means if I was to stand here on this dock for the next six and a half hours or so, I'd be lifted up 18 feet. I wouldn't have to crane my neck to see the top of the pier. I could practically hop on it. But of course, I'm not going to hang out for six hours. Instead, I'm headed to see as much as I can of the powerful tides and currents here, including, get this, including a huge gyre, an area of whirlpools called the Old Sow. Talk about dramatic. This is Salts and Water, stories from the coast of Maine. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Salts and Water is a podcast series from Experience Maritime Maine. Salts for salty, earthy people, water for the ever-present ocean. On this episode, the drama of Eastport Tides. I have never seen ocean water bubble and swirl and twist about so much. It's like we're in a cauldron. This is the Old Sow. It's a spot off Deer Island, New Brunswick, that's crazy with whirlpools. And believe me when I tell you, that's not the sound of the water at the back of the boat I'm on. That's one of the whirlpools spinning around and around and around. It mysteriously appears in the water, maybe three or four feet across. Then, just as inexplicably, it disappears. And not just one. There are a dozen whirlpools just like it on this side of the boat. It's remarkable. How many whirlpools are we talking about? Oh, there can be... 50 or 100 there at times. Six inches to, say, four feet. Whirlpools on a big tide can get uh, 12, 20 foot across, four feet deep. That's George Harris Jr. from Eastport. But call him George and he probably won't answer. Everyone calls him Butch. He runs Eastport Windjammers. Butch takes people whale watching and out to the old sow. Why is it called that? I've heard because years ago, just the way it sounds from shore when it's, when it's dead calm, it sounds like an old sow. It makes a lot of racket. Why so many whirlpools in one place? It's where three currents actually collide and trying to squeeze between two points, Deer Island Point and Dog Island Point. It's a giant bowl that's 300 feet deep. Bob Peacock is a harbor pilot. He guides huge tankers through the waters around Eastport. And as the water piles into that bowl coming from three different directions, it gets it spinning. And that's why there's a whirlpool there. I've kayaked in a bunch of places along the main coast, but I'll be honest, there is no way I'd kayak through the old sow. We tend to call kayaks widowmakers for good reason. There's times to play around in it and there's times not to. Well, say around 10, 12 years ago, there was a boat carrying boxes of salmon smolts. He'd come around the point and get hit by one of them currents, actually rolled the 80-foot boat down, and all the boxes slid to one side and the boat rolled right upside down. There were three guys on the boat. Actually, they walked right around the bottom of the boat 
they was lucky another ball happened to be coming by and picked them off. The ocean floor here is hilly, not just at the Old Sow, but everywhere. Run an 18-foot tide over these hills, and you get fast, rapidly changing currents, sometimes up to six or seven knots. So it's not just the Old Sow that mariners need to watch out for. Bob, the harbor pilot, he says wherever you're sailing, it's extreme boating. Lubeck Narrows, Passamaquoddy Bay, Head Harbor Passage, the tides and currents around Eastport get your attention, as Bob puts it. For instance, a ship that comes here from Norfolk with its, you know, a small tide, 5, 10 feet, they get up here with a 20-foot tide and they get scared to death. I leave here and I go to St. John and there's a 30-foot tide. It kind of catches my attention. The pilots from St. John and I went up to Minas Basin once Nova Scotia where there's a 50-foot tide and it got all our attentions. Strangely, people on land need to be wary of the water too. Take the two kids Bob told me about that got stuck in a jeep on a sandbar. Tide came up quick, one of them died. Or the MIT professor who was crossing a rocky sandbar near East Quadi Lighthouse at the tip of Campobello Island. He decided to walk across and the tide caught him. His wife went in after him and the pilot boat in Campobello got him. Um, but he'd already expired by the time they got there. She survived. But it's going so fast across that bar, it can go 10 knots across that bar. And it's colder than hell, you know, so that's another issue, you know. Your feet get numb, you don't walk so well, you know, that kind of thing. But there's been a lot of people washed off of there. When I say you live or die by the tide, I mean exactly that. You live or die by the tide. Don't read behind us. Eight o'clock coming towards us. The tides bring life, too. Lots of life. Back on the boat, Butch spotted a minke whale, about 30 feet long. On a triple day on the midsummer, we'll see two or three finbacks, probably 10 minkies, hundreds of seals. On occasion, you see a tuna fish jump or a shark. Early summer, we'll see three or four eagles. This time of year, September, it's nothing to see 50 or 60 eagles. Why is all that here? No, just because of the feed in the bay. We have krill and plankton and herring, probably the most herring I've seen in 20 years in Eastwood area. So it was, that brings in all the wildlife. Food, dinner. Yeah, food, that's what they're here for. Oh, so we're getting uh, really good minke whale sightings out here on the bay today. Uh, I, I live here, I live locally, so uh, I do this every once in a while. I've never seen them come this close to the boat. So those are really, it's really special. It's really exciting. What's your name and where do you live? I'm Penny Geisinger, and I live in Trescott, which is just outside of Lubeck. I'm uh, Sue Milligan, and I'm from Oxford, Maine. What do you think of all the water? It's, the tides and the current and the it, color and the light? And it's the... amazing, and it changes. And to watch the fog banks roll in or look off in the distance, and we caught a lot of main um, book, Robert McCloskey books, and it looks like his books. It feels like his books felt when you read them. Pretty amazing place. Make way for minkies? I'm not sure I read that title, but it's been a good one. <laughs> you don't have to be on a boat to see whales. It kind of blew my mind, actually. I spent a day on Campobello Island. I brought my passport with me because it's Canada. 
Just saying. Anyway, I hiked across the rocks where the professor was caught off guard and out to East Quaddy Light where minke and finback whales saunter by. I didn't even need binoculars to see them, although they would have helped. As I poked around the shoreline, I ran into a college science class on a field trip. Hello. What are you guys looking at? Oh, just <laughs> everything. We're just looking. It's a marine mammal and pelagic bird class from UMM, from down in Machias. Pelagic birds, by the way, tend to live most of their life on the water. Birds like Jaegers and shearwaters, gannets and razorbills. There's a good chance you'll see some here, and so much more. Why study marine biology here? You can drive 10 minutes away, not even, and you have the ocean right there, and it's your lab, or we can just take a casual drive to Canada and look for whales. <laughs> you can't get this anywhere else. And we can see, like, just even in areas like this, just all the biodiversity just in the intertidal zone. You have the algae there, and then underneath the algae, you, have, you can find sea urchins, you can find sea stars. You can just find a whole array of organisms that you can just study right over here, and you don't get that too many other places. You don't get that too many other places. I wonder if that should be the tagline for this part of Maine. In fact, that quality attracts a lot of artists to the area around Eastport. In particular, back in the late 60s and early 70s, about the time of the Back to the Land movement, a lot of artists moved here, many from New York City. Painters and sculptors, printmakers, filmmakers, poets. Why move here? Well, for one, housing was cheap. Apparently, you could buy an entire house for the same amount you could rent one for a summer in Provincetown. For another, to escape. Eastporters sometimes say, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. Well, that's appealing to some artists, a chance to avoid the bustle and competition of the city. This neck of Maine is still a draw for artists. For instance, the Tides Institute and Museum of Art runs an artist-in-residence program. Every year, several artists from around the world spend a few months here working and exhibiting. You don't get that too many other places. The same could be said of the photographs of Lisa Tyson Ennis. It's a beautiful spot, isn't it? It's about a half an hour before dawn. A slice of silver sky at the horizon colors a flat, calm ocean. This is Lisa's time of day. The sun is just gorgeous on those clouds. What is it you're doing? Just connecting the camera to the tripod. I like very low light uh, because it doesn't leave a lot of contrasty shadows. It's just a very soft light. And it also allows me to have a long exposure, which is what I'm really after. So it means starting early. Lisa is a fine arts photographer, and she makes photos like I've never seen before. I doubt my words will do justice to her work, but I'll try. Lisa's images of the main coast are arresting, truly arresting. They're ethereal. Photos of the shore and old fishing wares and ramshackle buildings photographed as though through the murky haze of time. In fact, time is an essential element of her photos. Lisa prefers long exposures. She'll leave her shutter open for 30 seconds, a minute, several minutes. The long exposure will uh, bring the clouds through scene. It'll soften out the water. Um, and... It makes this composite of time being captured on film, something we can't see with our eye. 
Uh, so it's always this absolute thrill to see the developed film and see something that we can't see. Lisa moved to Lubeck with her husband just a few years ago from Philadelphia. We are here because of this landscape. I feel a real connection to the environment, which I didn't have when I lived in Philadelphia. I'm very, very aware of, through all my senses, I would say, of the ocean. You know, the hearing, the changing tides, you can pretty much tell what tide it is by the sound Obviously, the smell and the feel of the fog on your skin and then just the incredible visual beauty. And it's always, always changing. It's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Um, And it has these very dark rocks in the very blue water, uh, which... Of course, I'm shooting black and white. The water will end up looking sort of smoky white. I always try to put as little in the image as possible, so it's very quiet. Narrowing it down to the most basic that I can get it. Since I spoke with Lisa, I've thought a lot about what she said regarding her images, that she attempts to capture the most basic. It seems like that impulse may be born, in part, from this place, the area around Eastport and Lubeck and Campobello. Maine, and down east Maine in particular, are often thought of as the edge. Think about it. It's the last place on the east coast of the U.S. before Canada. Maine's boldest and rockiest coast bears itself against the cold North Atlantic here. And of course, there are the dramatic tides and the turbulent waters. It's raw, like the reversing falls in Pembroke. It's slightly out of the way, down a couple of dirt roads, but worth the drive. The current is so strong, there's like a standing wave right in front of me. The water is just roiling hard. It's like it's boiling out in the middle of this river. When the tide comes in, it creates a waterfall in one direction. When the tide goes out, the waterfall reverses. Crazy. In Lubeck, down Water Street, there's a little park with a fisherman's memorial. I counted 113 names, confirmation of water's power here and the hazards of fishing. Right past the memorial, there's a jetty. I don't know if you're supposed to walk out on it, but I did. Seals gather here, waiting for dinner, delivered right to them on a current that rips past the rocks. The seaweed is just swaying back and forth like it was wheat in an open field in a strong wind. And of course, there's Quaddy Head State Park in Lubeck. You've seen pictures of the lighthouse here. I'm sure of it. It's the one painted with red and white stripes. It sounds wild here today, but this is actually pretty calm. The waves are only two to three feet. And what about that boat dock I stood on? The one next to the fish pier in Eastport. Well, today's Thursday still, but now it's about 4.30 in the afternoon. High tide. I was here a little over six hours ago. And I walked down a ramp to get down to a slip, 
and it was incredibly steep at that time. But right now I'm gonna walk on it. And it's certainly not flat, but the angle going down is so much easier. I don't have to hold the railing. I'm not gripping with my toes like I did last time. I'm on the slip. And uh, earlier when it was dead low tide, I had to crane my neck to see the top of the pier. Yeah, well now I can just easily reach up and tap my hand on the top of the pilings. The tide has come up 17 and a half feet today. It's just incredible. Salts and Water, Stories from the Maine Coast, is produced by Experience Maritime Maine. We invite you to visit the website, experiencemaritimemaine.org. You'll learn more about the state's maritime traditions and plan your visit here. This podcast is sponsored by Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors. I had production help from Abby Levin. Thank you, Abby. Thanks also to the Tides Institute and Museum of Art in Eastport for their research help. Our theme music is from Ketza. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Please listen to more episodes of Salts and Water, including stories about women lobster boat captains in Stonington and a swashbuckling fishmonger in Portland. I'm Rob Rosenthal. So you are listening to WERU Community Radio at 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and also streaming online at WERU. And this is Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. And on the show today, we've been featuring a few of the podcasts from the new podcast series called Salts and Water, Stories from the Maine Coast. And this past this story we were just listening to was all about Eastport. Um, and uh, there was a, a line in that particular story that sort of struck me. The tides bring life, lots of life. And uh, when, when you think of Eastport and you think of Copscook Bay and you think of the tides, um, you can't help but think of the life that is brought to that region. And one of the pieces of the Eastport story that didn't come up as much in the podcast is Eastport's um, sardine history and how that section of the Maine coast was such an important part uh, and such a central area to Maine's sardine heritage, which is not so much part of our history now, but still a very big part of the Eastport story. Um, and Eastport is in a time of transition, it seems like, from everything we hear about it. And that comes up in the podcast a little bit. Um, we have in the studio with us today um, Crystal Hitchings from the Washington County Council of Governments, who does a whole lot of work in Washington County and the Downeast region. To give us a little bit of context of what's going on in Eastport these days. Sure. As you were saying, Eastport was quite a bustling community um, not that long ago, and Lubeck as well, and many of our other coastal communities. Although, um, the, once the sardine industry pulled out of all of these communities, they experienced quite a downturn economically as well as um, culturally. A lot of people moved away and storefronts closed. But Eastport has really been able to pull themselves back and over the past decade has really begun um, transforming themselves into more of a an arts community, uh, arts culture, and a really their focus is now um, on coastal tourism. Um, there are boat tours. They're, they're connected with the maritime islands in New Brunswick and are really focusing on making use of what they have and finding new ways to bring that to the world. 
Great. And uh, that raises sort of an interesting question for me because um, a lot of communities in on the main coast are in um, are going through various stages of transition, some of them being a little bit historically a little bit more based on the natural resources from a fisheries perspective. Um, and as fisheries change, um, there's changes happening in the communities. So what, what do you think <clears throat> is the role in these communities as a community planner in your in your day job? Uh, what's the role of tourism in uh, helping communities revitalize and what's the impact that that has? as perhaps good, perhaps challenging on our communities? Sure. Tourism brings a few different benefits to the community. Of course, one of them is the obvious economic benefit that um, comes with folks coming and spending their money. But at the same time, it also, I think, brings a strong cultural benefit for the folks who live there because they get an opportunity to showcase and um, talk about the things that are very important to their lives and to their everyday existence, the things that may, they may not necessarily um, see a lot of value to the outside world in, but when you bring people from the outside world to them, um, you realize how very inspiring it really is to other people. And so I think it's an opportunity for creating strong community pride, as well as setting the pace for what tourism might look like in the future. One of the things that we have to take into account, I think, is that tourism will happen regardless of whether we want it or not. Um, We all like to visit new places and the word is getting out about how wonderful places in Down East are. And it's, I think the community's role is to tell their story and set the stage for how they want to interact with visitors in the future. Yeah, because there's tourism and tourism, right? Mm-hmm. There's the big sort of mass-produced tourism um, of yesteryear that still happens in portions of our coast. A lot of people, congestion, some challenges. Um, but I think what I'm understanding that uh, the Experience Maritime Maine folks and the these podcast stories are trying to do is illustrate uh, stories about Maine's real people and real places. In, Absolutely. In sort of ways that um, value the community. Absolutely. And we want the people who come and visit us to be folks who are looking for that kind of experience, who already resonate perhaps or have an inkling that they will. We want folks to come and visit us who will um, integrate with our residents and and be good good guests and <laughs> and spend their money. Yes. And, and tell their friends and come back. But yes, people who will respect the communities and, and um, appreciate what they offer. So um, the podcast, Salt and Water, stories from the Maine coast, um, I think there's various different ways that people can hear the rest of them. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, where people should go if they want to hear more. Sure. You can download them directly from experiencemaritimemaine.org or saltsandwater.org. You can also find them on iTunes, on Stitcher, and I think there's one other way. SoundCloud. Okay. <laughs> I'm just learning about these myself. <laughs> yeah, the wave of the storytelling future. Um, and uh, what what are some plans um, going forward? Well, as far as promoting the stories, do you mean, or creating new? Uh, creating new, yeah. Sure. Well, we're just exploring uh, round two of um, grant applications and potentially bringing Rob back to maybe head to new communities or perhaps to come back to some of these communities and explore stories that maybe came up before but didn't get recorded. 
And um, since we were not able to do calls today, if people wanted to get in touch with you with questions or comments about the project or um, even to pitch a story, um, how could they get in touch with you or folks involved? Sure. If people have ideas for stories, then they should contact editor at experiencemaritimemaine.org. You can submit photography, stories. Um, you can sign your business up to be a partner. Otherwise, you can contact me, Crystal Hitchings, at 207-546-3600 if you have direct questions. Great. Thank you so much, Crystal. Um, We are approaching the end of our time here on Coastal Conversations. I just wanted to let you know that our next show next month um, is going to be taking a look at um, another angle, another issue related to tourism, which is the um, transportation planning process in Acadia National Park and how Acadia and surrounding communities are attempting to handle the increased use that they're seeing in the park. Um, So I'd like to thank our guest, Crystal Hitchings from Washington County Council of Government for joining us. Thank you, Crystal. Um, And also thank the Experience Maritime Maine folks and the producer of the Salts and Water podcast series, Rob Rosenthal, for allowing us to air the series on the air today. Hopefully um, you've enjoyed it. So Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our show. Um, And stay tuned for On the Ring with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Mm